a sermon from this for some reason. It was one of those weeks where I just did not get my pen to paper or my head into gear. I don't know whether that's the nature of the passage or quite what, but anyway, here goes. (laughs) Daniel's prayer comes when Darius the Mede takes over the Babylonian kingdom. I guess that's significant because that's the point at which there's some chance of Israel being reinstated to its kingdom because the Babylonian king's mothers have gone. Daniel's been reading the book of Jeremiah, it says, and we presume that's Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12, and 29, verse 10, which say, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years, but when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, and I will make it desolate forever, declares the Lord. And then in 29 verse 10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So these words of Jeremiah were presumably written before the people were taken into captivity, as a warning that they'd be taken into captivity, but also as an encouragement that that captivity wouldn't go on forever. And it goes on to the verse that some of you will know very well, where it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. (coughs) Well, the poor Israelite people have been 70 years in exile in Babylon. No doubt they found that a devastating time. This is their God, their God that chose them, their God that took them out of Egypt, and yet they've ended up away from their homeland, away from the temple, their centre of worship, for 70 years, with their kings like slaves instead of rulers. This is definitely not looking like plans to prosper you and not plans to harm you. So I'm sure they really needed that word from Jeremiah and Daniel to take notice of it. Because at this particular juncture in time, they've had 70 years in Babylon, and there's that awful sense of this is punishment for our sins. We can't blame anyone else for it. It all must have seemed quite bleak for them. And they must have almost have started thinking, maybe God does not love us anymore. Maybe God doesn't have plan for us. Maybe God isn't going to pick us up and take us back and take us on. And you get something of a sense of all that in Daniel's prayer. Because Daniel is he's not complacent because he reads these words of Jeremiah. He doesn't think, oh, goody, goody, we're going home now. So all I need to do is just have a nice time. He gets on his knees, he fasts, he prays. He goes to God and he reminds God of things. This is what you'd call a corporate confession by Daniel. He's speaking on behalf of the people and he includes himself in it. We don't know what his walk with God is like but he concludes himself as a sinner and takes the sin of the nations from the past on himself and voices it. So he's identifying with the people. It's, if you were there this morning, I don't know how many, but probably most of us, it's a Catholic prayer, I'm going to say. In other words, he's speaking on behalf of all the people of Israel and one nation under God. He 
says he's speaking on behalf of those who've been scattered everywhere because they're round and about because of the sins. It's both a confession of Israel's sin and what you might call a confession that acknowledges the greatness of God. So we've heard from our songs and in the reading, God declares, Daniel declares, sorry, God is awesome. God is faithful to his covenant of love. God is righteous in everything he does. God is merciful and forgiving. And because Daniel understands that about God, and he understands that God will keep his prophecy of Jeremiah's, he knows that even though at the moment they're stuck there in exile, he can appeal to God and he can remind him, this is what you said, God. You said after 70 years we'd be back in Jerusalem again. He also, though, confesses the shame and guilt and wrongdoing very clearly. These people have sinned, they've been wicked, they've rebelled, they've turned away from God's commands and laws, they haven't listened to the prophets who spoke in God's name, they've been unfaithful, that means they've gone off and worshipped other gods and other idols and things of wood and stone and idols of other nations and they haven't obeyed God. And Daniel quite clearly says, you are righteous God. We've merited these judgments and curses that Moses told us would come upon us if we didn't keep to God's commandments. He's saying we deserve this great disaster that's fallen on us. There's a very poignant line there in the middle. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what's been done to Jerusalem. So the people of God aren't exempt from punishment. Indeed, perhaps almost the opposite is true. There's the verses in Luke that says, of him who's been given much, much will be expected. If God has chosen a people and called them out and given them his laws and given them the promised land, then he expects that that people who bear his name will be better, not worse, than the nations around them. So when they fail, their punishment is greater, not less, probably, than the people around them. Nonetheless, Daniel reminds God he did choose this people. He did bring them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And he did do it to make an enduring name for himself. So maybe when we're having things not going well, and it might be a disaster of our own making, it might be because of stuff we've done wrong, then it does still bear worthiness to remind God that he did bless us in the past. And that helps our faith to rise again and think, actually, God, you didn't do that because I was amazing and I was worthwhile and I was fantastic because I never got things wrong. You did that, God, out of your mercy. remind ourselves of what he's done in the past so that we believe again he will do more things in the present if we turn to him repentance and faith. So Daniel appeals to God to act now, not because of the righteousness of the people, not because they deserve him to, but because God's mercy and love, amazing love that we had earlier, <laughs> never ends and never fails. He appeals for him to turn from his rock and anger. His 
people have felt the full force of that over the past 70 years, banished from their homeland. But now Daniel is appealing, turn from that rock and anchor, have mercy on us, spare Jerusalem, please care about its desolation and act on our behalf. Because that's the truth, and that people bear God's name. Do it for your sake, he's saying. Don't do it for our sake, but do it for your sake, for your glory, because we bear your name. We bear his name as the Church of God. We were talking today about the suffering of fellow Christians, fellow churches. They bear his name and we bear his name as one Catholic people. And so we went to him this morning on behalf of our brothers and sisters in other lands. And again, we're doing it not because we're good and holy and righteous, but because he is. And so we can appeal to him as part of his people across the world to have mercy on those who seek suffering. And even if sometimes our suffering and their suffering is because of things we've done wrong, we can still appeal to him for him to act on our behalf because we're his people. And I'm not suggesting it is in the case of these people. So we appeal to him because we want his name to be glorified. So we have all that powerful praise. And then comes God's answer. It says while Daniel's still speaking and praying and confessing, and presumably he's been persisting in doing that for a while, suddenly the angel Gabriel appears. Ruth picked this one up, and I like this, in swift flight. <laughs> Imagine the angel just whoosh! And there he is, in swift light, in front of him. <laughs> Love it. I wouldn't mind seeing an angel in front of me, although I might go, oh, maybe not. <laughs> anyway, he says to him, you've got an answer as soon as you started praying. He didn't, he didn't stop praying at that point, obviously, because he didn't know. He kept on praying. But the answer was already given the minute he started praying. And we might remember that. I mean, keep on praying until you see the answer. But God hears it straight away. Daniel's told he's highly esteemed. Wouldn't we love to hear God say that about us? You are highly esteemed. Then actually, of course, we all are highly esteemed in Christ. We're all covered in his righteousness. Then we come to the answer. <laughs> Girls and boys, no, men and women of God. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the explanation of the answer. I will tell you a couple of suggestions. But it made me smile, because you have all that, and then you have this really tricky answer. It's not just a, yes, your prayers have been answered, I'll send your people back to Jerusalem, you can rebuild it and resettle, and you'll live happily ever after. Although they do actually get back. Yeah. Although they do get back to Jerusalem and resettle, because the 70 years has been completed, and so they do go home and they do resettle. But this is a much fuller prophecy than that and it's caused no end of wrangling over the centuries it makes me laugh that it says to Daniel I've come now to give you insight and understanding <laughs> because I couldn't help thinking well I wish you'd given the commentators and me the same level of insight and understanding because they all disagree about what it means there you go so they have a couple of views some people think that the 490 years 77 is 70 weeks of years which immediately follows that time and it ends with Antiochus 
desecrating the temple and he sets up a statue to Zeus on the altar and he sacrifices pigs on it. So there's a probably the majority of people now think it applies to that. But the more traditional view is that it's pointing to Christ. You can take pick. So verse 24, for example, I understand where they get to that from verse 24, because verse 24 says that transgression will finish. And obviously one as a Christian would think, oh yes, Christ's death on the cross finishes transgression. It talks about the atonement being achieved. That's another way of saying atonement is at one month, so it's God's people being reconciled to God. It talks of the bringing in of everlasting righteousness. And that word everlasting would immediately be to me king king, where you nothing's everlasting until you get to Christ. It talks about the sealing up of vision and prophecy. And some people explain that as the Old Testament being finished in Christ and a new covenant being set up. And it talks about the anointing of the most holy. And again, some and then verse 26 talks about the anointed one being cut off and having nothing, which could be Christ's death. So the more traditional view is that it's talking also prophetically pointing forward to Christ. But the, probably the bulk of people now think it's referring to the events that immediately follow. I'll leave you to make your own decision. <laughs> if you want to spend a few hours studying it, I believe me, there's plenty of stuff on it. And I can't say I've made a really clear decision. But sometimes it means both ends. It means it applied to that time, but it's also like a sort of vision of the future. So it, it could be both ends. So, in summary, we can see that in this passage, God has got plans, he's got perfect plans, which will always be fulfilled. And sometimes in our really, really horrendous times, we might be Yeah.